Welcome to the Mission North Shore podcast. If you'd like to know more about our ministry here at the Mission, visit us online at www.themissionnorthshore.org. Thanks for listening. God bless. How are you guys? All right, let's open our Bibles. 1 Corinthians. We started 1 Corinthians last week, but we started in the book of Acts, if you remember. We wanted to look at uh, the event of Paul planting the church there in Corinth. This week, we're actually getting into 1 Corinthians. So we'll be there in chapter 1, and let's pray. Lord, we ask that at this moment, you remind us that what we hold in our hands are the holy, inspired words of you, God Almighty. Mind us that these are not some suggestions or things that we might just consider to do, but this is the infinite wisdom of God Almighty. We pray that as we go through 1 Corinthians, and there's some difficult things within it, that we would allow your word to shape our lives. We would allow those truths to inform and shape the way we think and the way we act. And um, we bring our lives in line with your word. So right now, make us a people of the word. Make us a Bible people that love your word and follow your word. In Jesus' holy name, amen. Amen. Well, as I said, we're in 1 Corinthians. We're going to do verses 1 through 9 this morning. I think we'll just start by reading those. And then we'll start to discuss and start to draw things out of them. So if you have your Bibles, look at verses 1 through 9. If you don't have a Bible, there's some on that back, <clears throat> excuse me, back table. If you don't own a Bible, feel free to take one home, and that'll be your Bible. You can keep it and write in it and take notes in it and whatever else. Have a little bit of water here. And we'll read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. It says, Paul, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling. I have those two words underlined in my Bible, sanctified and saints by calling, with all of those who in every place call in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in Him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, through whom we were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, if you guys are familiar with the rest of this letter of 1 Corinthians, which I know many of you are because you guys are Bible scholars, you've read this, Hopefully some of you in anticipation of this series have read through it, and I know some of you have. And if you have read through the rest of 1 Corinthians, this intro should stick out to you because it is completely different in its tone than the whole rest of the book, isn't it? 
So when you read this intro and then you read the rest of the book, you should say, wow, those two things are vastly different because the rest of the letter is pretty much what? A scolding. It's a scolding to the church at Corinth for their unbiblical attitudes and their unbiblical behaviors. And so Paul is going to break out. When we get past verse 9, we stopped at verse 9. When we hit verse 10 and onward, he's going to break out the proverbial whip. He's going to get after them. He's even going to come down to the point of telling them to kick certain people out of the church because of blatant, unrepented sin. That's how gnarly it's going to get in his discussion of their attitudes and their behavior. And we have to understand a little bit of where Paul's coming from and how he would get to that place. See, Paul was heavily invested in the church at Corinth. He was the one that went there and planted the church. He would have been the one that led most of these guys to Christ. He calls himself their father in the faith. That's the way he viewed them, as their father in the faith. Certainly there's God the Father that's above him, but he is their father in the faith in the sense that he led them to the Lord. He spent a year and a half establishing them in the word, right? Being there, caring for him, praying over them, pouring his life into them. He knew them well. He loved them immensely. And so now he's super upset because of the quick downward spiral that they had taken since he had left the church and gone back out on the mission field. He's upset with how they've allowed the worldliness of the Corinthian culture to now permeate it and start to seep back into the church. And the church was undistinguishable from the other people around them. They're just living like everybody else. We listed some of the issues that he took up with them last week. I'll just go through those real quickly so we understand what he's upset about. He's upset about disunity and divisions within the church. There's a selfishness among the Christians, and a self-promotion among people. There's confusion and misunderstanding and self-promotion having to do with spiritual gifts, wanting to elevate yourself and everybody to see how you operate in your gift. Everybody look at me and what I'm doing. There was sexual immorality that was rampant within the church, and some people trying to justify it, saying, no, no, it's okay. We are free in Christ. It's totally fine. There's even one guy sleeping with his stepmother and nothing, and just showing up at church like it's no big deal. And then the church leaders aren't even dealing with it, so there's this lack of church discipline among the church leaders. There's bad theology within the church. There's even some denying the very resurrection of Jesus Christ. They're denying a quintessential doctrine for the church. They're demeaning the Lord's Supper. There's these quarrels between them. They're at odds with one another, even to the point where they're going and and filing lawsuits against each other within the church. There's cliques and jealousy and pride. There's an overall lack of conviction to follow Christ and an overall immaturity within the Christian church. Really, these guys are an absolute mess. And so Paul, and you put yourself in his shoes for a minute, after all he's invested in them, all the care and the shepherding and all the prayer and the spiritual warfare he's done on their behalf and establishing them in the word. I mean, sitting with them for a year and a half doing Bible studies so they'd have a solid foundation. How would you expect Paul to begin his letter to them? How would you write to them if you were in his shoes? 
might be a little less gracious. I was thinking about it in my case, because I'm a church planner too, along with you guys, and what if I had spent all these years pouring into you guys and loving on you guys, praying for you guys, and then I go out on the mission field for a couple you know, years, and then I start hearing all these stories of this chaos that's going on in the church. Like, how would I start that letter? Probably start with the word knuckleheads. Like, what in the world are you guys doing? And then just hammer down. But Paul doesn't do that, does he? What does he do here at the beginning of 1 Corinthians? He calls them saints. He says, I thank my God always for you guys. And so this intro is vastly different than the rest of the book. The rest of the book is scoldings. This intro is vastly different. And it's really important, guys, that you and I understand why Paul starts this letter in this fashion. Why does he start it with affirmation? He begins affirming who they are in Christ before he ever deals with the problems. So often when we have to confront somebody with issues that are unbiblical in their life, what do we do? We go straight to the issue. He doesn't do that. He goes straight to Christ and he affirms who they are in Christ first. Now here's the reason. If Paul would have just brought the hammer out from the get-go, 16 chapters of just hammering these guys and sent the letter with no affirmation, if he would have said everything that he needed to say, and he needs to write and address these issues, doesn't he? He needs to bring the whip out a little bit. He needs to tighten some stuff up. But if he had only done that without any affirmation, what would have happened? These guys would have started to wonder where they stand with God. They would have read this letter and been like, man, are we even in? Like, does this mean that God's rejecting us? Have we crossed a line and have we blown it so bad that we're not even saved any longer? And they would have been like, we don't even know where we stand with God right now. If that would have happened, there would have been this natural question of acceptance. Does God still accept us? And so Paul starts by affirming who they are in Christ. And so after verse 1, where he's introducing himself, in verse 2, he says this. Look at verse 2. To the church of God, which is in Corinth, to those who have been sanctified, that's past tense, who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints, or some of your translations will say holy ones. Saints are holy ones by calling. So he begins this thing by going, you guys are sanctified in Christ, and you guys are are saints. Now, when, when he says that, sanctified and saints, it's, it's virtually saying the same thing twice. I'll put it up here so, so it's easier to understand. Sanctified is the verb, hagiazo. Its root, which sanctified comes from, is hagios. That's translated holy or saint. So they virtually mean the same thing, holy. And holy means to be set apart set apart from sin, and set apart to God and his purposes. And so Paul affirms these guys, and he says, you guys are sanctified. You guys are holy and set apart to the Lord. You guys are God's holy people. You guys are saints. Now, 
That brings up some questions, doesn't it? Because if you start reading the rest of the chapter, you go, how are these guys saints? Like, how is that even possible? What is he talking about? He, he knows what's going on in the church. Why would he start by telling them that they're a bunch of saints? Well, it's really important. And th- this is an absolute necessity of a theological doctrine that we need to understand. There are two facets of Christian holiness. One is positional holiness. The other is practical holiness. Positional holiness and practical holiness. Positional holiness is our position before God solely based on what Jesus did on the cross by removing our sin and setting us right with God. That changed our position. That's positional holiness. Practical holiness is what? Living it. Living it out. That's what we do if we're living out the word of God. That's practical holiness. So let's look at these a little bit closer. Positional holiness was necessary because we were alienated and separated from God by our sin, correct? You guys with me? You guys awake? Jesus came, didn't he? And he died on the cross to pay our price for sin. And what he did in that moment was he removed our sin that separated us from God. And when he removed the sin that separated us from God, it changed our position. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified, past tense, been justified by faith, we now have what? Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Scripture is really clear that before we had that peace, what were we? Enemies, alienated, distant from God. But now because of Christ, we have peace with God. Our position has changed so that now... Whenever we stand before God the Father, He will look upon us and He will not see our sin. He will see the righteousness of Jesus Christ because the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. It doesn't have anything to do with anything you've earned. It has everything to do with what Jesus did on the cross. And so we get Hebrews 10.10. We have been past tense, what? Sanctified. You guys with me, Really? Come on, let's go, wake up. We have been sanctified, which literally means made holy. We have been sanctified because we're so good and behave so well. We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. That's where it comes from. This is now our position of all who come to Christ by faith. If you've repented of your sin, if you've turned your life over to Christ, every single born-again believer is a saint. You are now St. Jim. St. Jim right there. St. Jay. Right? We are all saints if we have given our life to Christ. Every born-again believer is a saint. The term saint shows up over 60 times in the New Testament to describe the followers of of Jesus. You know how many times Christian shows up? Three. Saint 60? Three times with the word Christian. And so this term saint speaks of, and it's there to speak of, our position in Christ, not our performance. See, the word saint is often misrepresented in our culture, isn't it? 
It's often associated with performance, and we'll even do it kind of unwillingly, unthinking about it, unconsciously. We'll say like, oh, that person's such a saint because they did something good. Oh, they came over and they helped me out, or I had a flat tire and they pulled over and helped me. That person's such a saint based on their performance. And we often kind of get those two things confused, saint and performance. Maybe sometimes it's tainted by the Catholic view of saint. We certainly love our our brothers and sisters in the Catholic Church, but they miss this right here. In the Catholic view, to become a saint is a long process, right? You have to be dead for five years before you're even eligible to be a saint. Although Paul is writing to living people, calling them a saint, you have to be dead for five years before you're eligible for sainthood. Then what they do is they compile all of this evidence that you have done all of these good deeds, so it's performance-based. Then there has to be evidence presented that you've done miracles. So now you've got these piles of evidence to show that you're good enough to be a saint. And if the Pope thinks you performed well enough in your life, he then declares you a saint. Not beating up on the Catholics. We love our Catholic friends. But can I say to you, that's just not biblical. If you're born again, born-again believer in Jesus Christ, the moment you believed, you became a saint. That's because this holiness that we're talking about is about our position, not about our performance. It's about our new identity in Christ, not how well we're behaving and keeping the rules. That was the whole point of the cross, was it not? We were already stained with sin and no way to do anything about it. If we could do something about it, we don't need Jesus. If we could get to heaven without him, well, what a waste that he would come and die. But that was the problem, wasn't it? We couldn't get there without him. So Jesus came and he bore our sin in his body on the cross to remove that stain of sin and to give us his righteousness. We are made holy by the blood of Christ, not by how well you and I perform. One of the best examples of this is in Colossians chapter 1, verse 21 and 22. I know I use this verse a lot, but I love this verse. Listen to what it says. You were once far away from God. Anybody here was once far away from God? You were far away from God. You were enemies, actually, separated from Him by your evil thoughts and actions, and yet now, who did it? We did it? No. He has reconciled you to Himself through the death of Christ in the physical body. And as a result, He has, not we have, He has brought you into his own presence, and you are what? Holy, blameless, as you stand before him without a single fault. That, my friends, is our position in Christ for everybody that has come to Christ by faith. That's what Jesus' death on the cross bought for you. Jesus was made sin with our sinfulness so that we might be made righteous with his righteousness. And so all who have surrendered their life to Christ are saints. You're holy and blameless without a single fault. That is your position in Christ. That is the way the Father sees you, not because of something you did, but solely because the blood of Jesus Christ covers your sin. Christ's righteousness has been placed upon you. That's positional holiness. That's what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians. 
That's what he's affirming for them. They're obviously not living it out. Read the rest of the book. They're far from saintly behavior, but Paul is affirming their position in Christ, that they are accepted. He wants them to know before he brings out the whip that they are loved and accepted and they belong to God, that they're established in Christ. In fact, in verse 2, if you look at it in the New Living Translation, it says it this way, and it speaks to this very well. It says, I'm writing to, to God's church in Corinth. To you have been called by God to be his holy people. He made you holy by means of Jesus Christ. He did the work. He made you holy. Or look at verses 8 and 9 in your Bible. Look at what it says. Our Lord Jesus Christ will also confirm you to the end. This is about eternity. This is about a position in Christ. He's going to confirm you to the end. And there it is again, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because we're so amazing? No. What's the very next word? God is faithful through whom you are called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. That's positional holiness. That's the holiness that Paul is applying to the Corinthian church now. Practical holiness is different, isn't it? Practical holiness is living that out. That's the reason Paul's writing the letter, because they haven't been living it out. That's the problem that's going on within the Corinthian church. They're not living out who they are in Christ. They're not living their lives by the word of God. But before he gets to the practical, he wants to give them the positional. He wants them to understand who they are in Christ. So the hopes are that they will bring the practical in line with the positional truth of who they are in Christ. One of the best places to see this is in the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 6, 20. Both of them are here. Look at what it says. It says, for you have been past tense, bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your bodies. You see what he's saying? He's got both positional and practical holiness in that same verse. You've already been bought for, with a price. Your payment for sin is complete in Christ. And so therefore, live it out. Glorify God in your bodies in the here and now. And so Paul establishes and he affirms the truth of who they are in Christ and then tells them to live it out. That's it pretty important message for the church today, is it not? And guys, this is what sets Jesus apart. And we need to understand why God would do this. And the reason is because love is a far greater motivation than fear. Let me explain what I mean. This is what sets Jesus and the gospel apart from every other religion in this world, every other cult in this world. And all of the others the motivation to do and to work and to behave and to give and all of the other religious activity, the motivation for those things among the others is acceptance. I'll only get to heaven or whatever they believe the end of the road is for them. I'll only get there if I earn it. The only way for me to belong, the only way for me to be accepted is if I perform well. 
The fear of not making it is always hanging over your head in all of the cults and all of these false religions. It's the fear of, I might not make it if I don't perform well enough. There's no assurance of salvation. I have to earn my acceptance before God. So the motivation is always fear of acceptance. Jesus is the exact opposite of that. He accepts you from the get-go. He accepts you with all of your sin and all of your junk and all of your bad habits. You come completely and utterly messed up and he says, come to me. And all of those who come to Jesus by faith, repent of their sins and turn their life to him are at that moment completely and utterly accepted. You become his. He takes care of this issue of acceptance From the beginning, you're already in. You're already there. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 through 6. It says this. God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, even when we were a train wreck and rebellious, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Now look at verse six. And what did he do? He raised, that's past tense. He raised us up with him and he seated us, again, past tense. He seated us with him in the heavenly places. All of that's in the past tense. We're already raised up. We're already seated with him in heaven as if we were already there. That's our position in Christ. So then, The motivation to follow Christ and to live out his world or live out his word in this world is different than the fear of acceptance. You're not living it to gain acceptance, you're living it because you're accepted. Because of this immense love that God has bestowed upon you, you therefore want to please him. You want to live it out for him because he's been so good to you. Look at 1 John. John had a great understanding of this. 1 John 4, 9. It says, God has showed us how much he has loved us by sending his one and only son into the world that we might have eternal life through him. The greatest display of love that has ever happened in this entire world is God sending his son to hang upon a cross for our sins. He says, I'm showing you how much I love you. And then when he gets to verse 19, he says this, we love because he first loved us. You see, the motivation for us to go live our lives according to the word of God is not a fear of acceptance. The motivation is a reciprocal love based on what God has already done for us through Christ Jesus. We love because he first loved us. Guys, when when we look at the cross and we listen to the gospel, it should blow our minds. If we understand what the gospel actually says, it should blow our minds. When you read the word of God, and you come across the gospel, you should be jumping out of your seat. When you hear me preach the gospel up here, there ought to be yes, amen. You guys ought to be bouncing off the walls in here. 
Because God left heaven. Like, we got to get this picture. God Almighty, the creator of everything with all of the power in all of the world, left the perfection of heaven and came into this sin-soaked world for me, for you. Became a man. Like God Almighty says, I'll actually become one of them. He subjected himself to the cruelty of fallen man. Think about that. God Almighty says, I'm going to put myself in subjection to the cruelest of the cruelty of fallen man. For me? For, for little sinful me? He allowed arrogant men to hang him on a tree that he himself created. And he hung there, taking the full weight of my punishment, the total wrath that was supposed to fall upon me. He took it upon himself. And then he says that I don't have to work for it. I just come to him simply by faith and surrender my life to Him, and give Him my life, and I receive from Him eternal life in His presence forever. And beyond that, the God of this universe, the one that created everything with infinite wisdom, wants to now have a relationship with me. Like, I can pray to Him, and not only does He hear Him, He responds to my prayers. Are you kidding me? This God actually is concerned with the everyday affairs of my life, He wants to lead me in these paths of righteousness the right way because he has infinite wisdom. Is there any greater motivation than that, than the immense love of God? I want to be with that God. He doesn't have to compel me by holding acceptance over my head. He's shown me how much he loves me. And for that reason, I want to live out his word. I want to please him because he's so So incredibly good. You see, this is important because Paul's about to spend the next 15 and a half chapters scolding the Corinthian church. But before that ever happens, he wants them to have a right understanding of who they are in Christ. He wants them to have a right understanding of what Jesus has done for them. He wants them to know how accepted they are and how loved they are so that it's His grace that will cause them to respond, not some fear of acceptance, not some fear of I'm not going to make it or some eternal punishment. He wants them to respond out of His love. So He tells them, from the get-go, how accepted they are. You you guys are sanctified. You guys are saints. He's going to bring you into His kingdom, not because of something you're doing, but because He is faithful. And because He's so good, you should love Him in a reciprocal way and live out His work. Now, the danger with grace, unlike holding acceptance over somebody's head, the danger with grace is that it can be abused. If you just hold acceptance over someone's head, it can't really be abused. You don't jump through the hoops, you don't get acceptance. That's not how Jesus works. But the danger with grace is that we could 
abuse it. We could say, well, I got my salvation, and so I, I don't really need to live it out. I got what I want, so I'm totally good. So like, I'm just going to wait till the Lord takes me home and do what I want to do in the meantime. And there's going to be no real change in their life, and there's no, no real serving of the Lord in that. And so that's true. So, some might abuse that grace and you could get into a debate of whether they're saved because they're not bearing fruit and you could go through all of that stuff and that's another sermon for a different time but we want to make sure we're not abusing that grace you you see some will but that's not why there's grace that's not why god gave us such great love the reason that god has bestowed so much incredible grace and love upon us is that it would actually be a catalyst. It'd be a motivation for us loving Him, for us responding to Him, for us worshiping Him, for us to pray, for us in serving Him, for us on mission so that other people hear of this great God, for us to have forgiveness and grace with other people. Paul would actually write in his second letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5, 14, he says this, The love of God compels us. What drives us, Paul says, is is not this fear of acceptance. What drives me is the immense love that God has put upon me. That's what urges me on. That's the driving force, God's love. And so then, as we wrap this up and we add some application to our lives, the question is, What have you done and what have I done and what do we do with this grace that God has given us? If he's lavished so much love and grace upon us, how are you and I responding? Are we treating it flippantly? Are we abusing grace? Are we taking it for granted at all? Or are we allowing it to be a catalyst to inform our lives? Do we allow His love to cause us to love Him more? Do do our times of worship begin with us going over the gospel in my life? Does your time of worship begin with you going in your mind and saying, I once was this, but now I'm this in Christ. I once was lost, alienated, an enemy, but now I am beloved, I'm sanctified, I'm a saint, I'm one of his holy ones, accepted to the end, and he will be the one to usher me into his kingdom. Does that begin your time of worship? See, it changes your mindset. We worship not because we have to, we worship because we love. And in our prayer, and in our serving, and in our missional Whatever out there in the world, when we go out and tell people about Jesus, is it the love of Christ that compels us? Having grace with one another and forgiveness with one another. That's where we're at. That's why so many times you've heard me say that it's so important for us to preach the gospel to ourselves. Preach the gospel to yourself. When you wake up in the morning, when you don't, feel like forgiving, when you feel anxious, when you're bummed out at somebody, when you're bummed out with life, when the feeling isn't there, you preach the gospel to yourself. When you're condemned and you're thinking, I'm such a loser and I'm so lame, 
when you're faced with temptation and you preach the gospel to yourself. And you think, but because he loved me so much, I want to love him and live out his word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this amazing thing, this, this gospel that you've given us, this good news that is so unique to you that we don't have to earn it, that we don't have to strive, that we don't have to try to somehow be accepted by you, but our acceptance was freely given. Lord, I pray for anybody in here today that's struggling with that truth. They just don't feel accepted. Lord, may your word touch their heart and may they know that if they've given their life to you, they are accepted. They are loved. They belong to you. And for all of us, Lord, may that truth of the gospel be the motivation for us to live it. May we love because you loved us first. May we genuinely reciprocate that love towards you in the desire to live out your word not out of compulsion or fear's sake, but because we have an understanding and a grasp of how much you love us. Lord, in this time of reflection, speak that truth right into our heart now. In Jesus' holy name, amen.